0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Gandalf the Grey, and I'm joined by Saruman the White. I fear your
1: love of the halfling's weed has dulled your mind, Chris.
0: Oh, has it, David? We are Chris Carter and David Robertson, your ever-faithful, um, ever-ridiculous Religious Studies Project We are the, hosts. the two towers of the Religious Studies Project. Oh! I like it. I like it. Um, This has no bearing on the interview at all, which is an interview that Ben Marcus recorded with Robert Jones on America's changing religious landscape. And we're delighted to have the interview and delighted to pass over to Ben
2: and Robert. My guest today is Robert P. Jones, the founding CEO of PRRI and a leading scholar and commentator on religion, culture and politics. He's the author of The End of White Christian America, two other books, and numerous peer reviewed book chapters and articles. Dr. Jones serves as the co chair of the National Steering Committee for the Religion and Politics Section at the American Academy of Religion and is a past member of the editorial boards for the Journal of the American Academy of Religion and Politics and Religion, a journal of the American Political Science Association. He holds a PhD in religion from Emory University an MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and a BS in Computing Science and Mathematics from Mississippi College. Today, we'll be discussing PRRI's 2018 reports about what's happening with the religious landscape in the United States. We'll look at the demographic changes in the country that might help explain the political climate that we find ourselves in today. Hello, Dr. Jones, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'd like to begin by asking with a really broad question. What's happening with religion in the U.S. today?
3: Well, it's a great question. A lot is happening. And I think that is the story that we've been experiencing a great deal of religious change, uh, particularly since the 1990s, but even it's been accelerated in the last decade. So just to give you a couple of, I think, relevant uh, stats, one is um, the percentage of white Christians in the country has been declining fairly precipitously in the last uh, 10 years. And in particular, we've gone from, uh, in the U.S., from being a majority white Christian nation uh, to one that is no longer a majority white Christian nation so and it's happened fairly rapidly if you go back to just 2008 uh, the country was 54 percent white and Christian and when I when I wrote my book uh, the End of white Christian America I was working with 2014 data uh, and that number had dropped from 54 percent to 47 uh, and that was a significant drop but we've been continuing to track data uh, since 2014 and that number is down to 41 percent. Now, So we've, wow. we've looked at a 13 percentage point drop just since 2008, so over the last decade uh, in the percentage of white Christians in the country. That's come with an uptick in the religiously unaffiliated uh, category. So if you could just go back to the 1990s, that those numbers are single digits, 5 6% uh, in the 1990s. Our last data, uh, 2017 data, is showing that number at 25% of the public, and among young people, it's 40 uh, percent of the public, so this is a real sea change in the country. Going from you know uh, uh, mostly white Protestant country 1993 was actually the last year the country was white and Protestant. But even if you take all white Christians together, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, non-denominational, non-denominational uh, together, that number today is only 41 percent, and that's that's a real shift for the country.
2: Wow, I have a number of questions from that. One is this category of nuns, N O N E S, the people who are yeah. unaffiliated. Many people think that that's a pretty homogeneous category of atheists and agnostics. But from what I understand, that's not the
3: case. Is that right? That's right. Um, atheists and agnostics actually make up only a minority of that category of a quarter of the U.S. population. And the rest of them are kind of a mixed bag. When we have looked underneath the hood, there's kind of two other groups in there. There's one group that looks uh, – that we've just broadly labeled secular in some of our reporting um, that looks broadly like a cross-section of the country. Uh, but there's another group in there that we – uh, actually dubbed Unattached Believers. And that group looks on many measures of religiosity, like how often do you pray? How often do you attend religious services? Do you believe in God? Uh, those kinds of questions. They look like religious Americans, even though they refuse the category, they won't identify uh, with any particular re- uh, religious uh, group. That group tends to be less white, more uh, African American or Latino. They tend to be younger, and so it's a it's a very interesting group. I, I think as a whole, um, this group has moved so fast now that it, it is a very diverse group. I mean, after all, it's a quarter of Americans, so um, that's a big, big group that we're that we're talking about now.
2: Wow! And does that seem to be Concentrated in the sort of godless coasts, or is that happening across the United States? Are we seeing a decrease in white Christian presence not only in the middle of the country, but also on the coast, or is it happening in certain places?
3: Yeah, this is a great question. You know, this is definitely not a bicoastal urban phenomenon. Um, in fact we uh, one project that uh, we at PRI started um, back in 2013 is called the American Values Atlas. We actually have this online so any of your listeners who want to uh, go check it out it's AVA dot P R R I dot uh, And what we did is we started uh, realizing that we had enough data every year that if we were careful about uh, combining it, we could actually map the religious demography of every state in the country and also the top 30 metro areas uh, in the country. So you can go online right now and you can compare Iowa to California and you can go back in time as well. And one of the things you see there is if you go back 10 years uh, to today, Virtually everywhere is ex- is experiencing these changes. So again, it's not just New York and California or Texas, um, but it's Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota. Um, each of these states have experienced, for example, approximately a ten percentage point drop in the number of white Christians in their uh, population over this last uh, over this last decade.
2: Wow. Are there any states or cities that jump out at you as sort of a surprising religious demography, or maybe the majority religious community is not what you'd expect, Mm -hmm. or the second biggest community is not what you'd expect?
3: Well, we still see some, you know, history at play. I mean, we still see Rhode Island as one of the most Catholic, you know, uh, states in the country, for example. And we still see the South, you know, heavily evangelical. So you can see the kind of history, religious history still there. But you know, we are. It is starting to mix up, even though you can see you can see these um, historic, I guess, centers. But you can also see the shifts happening there as well. Um, so even in Rhode Island, you're getting an uptick in the religiously unaffiliated, more Protestants uh, than you had in the past, and uh, in the evangelical South, you're getting more Latino uh, Protestants and Latino Catholics as a result of immigration uh, and changing migration patterns in the South.
2: A few times already you've mentioned the history of the United States, you've mentioned not only religious communities, but also mentioning markers of race and ethnicity, patterns of immigration. Can you tell me more about the relationship between religion, race, or ethnicity in the United States and how that shows up in the data?
3: Yeah. Well, it's one of the, uh, when I was working on the last book, um, uh, you know, the race, it, it became just so clear. I mean, it's something I've known, but I think it became clear to me in um, a more poignant way um, that for example, uh, you know, if you ask me in a sentence to summarize religious voting patterns, you know, you can't really talk about that without talking about race. Um, so the, the short answer to that question is in presidential elections, white Christians tend to favor Republican presidential candidates and non-white Religious people, Christians, or uh, and the religiously unaffiliated tend to support Democratic candidates. So the kind of lines of race and even class, uh, to some extent, the most dominant fault line in the religious uh, landscape is really uh, white, non-Hispanic Christians, and pretty much everyone else. You can see this cleavage on a whole range of issues.
2: That's so interesting. I had a professor in graduate school who used to say that you could accurately predict Americans' voting patterns if you knew four R's: race. Region, religion, and rank, and that's something that I've thought about a lot. This relationship between these four R's and how people vote, and the embeddedness of religion in American culture. Are there religious communities that are more diverse in terms in rank or or
3: race than others? They are, but they tend to be the smaller ones. So, like one of the more d- diverse uh, groups in the country is Jehovah's Witnesses, mm. uh, for example. They wow. tend to be very religiously diverse, or sorry, very re- uh, uh, racially and ethnically uh diverse much more so than really most other groups i can think of uh but they of course are very very small uh you know group in the country but it is a story of american religion that race has sorted and bifurcated uh, religious communities to such an extent that i mean you really can see these just major cleavages both in the denominational structure on the ground and the way that they're lived out and organized but also in the you know macro data you know one of the reasons why for example social scientists, when we're kind of parsing data, tend to look at African American Protestants uh, in one bucket and white evangelical Protestants in another bucket is because um, despite the fact that they share so many religious beliefs and practices, even hymns, when you look at how they behave and their attitudes in political space, the race kind of acts like a prism that just sort of pushes them in completely different directions. Um, So it – it's it's hard to overstate. I think the the way that race has structured American uh, religiosity.
2: That's so fascinating, and brings me to another question, which is as you know, religious studies as a field has had a lot of trouble with the quote unquote world religions paradigm and the fact that we often sort people mm-hmm. into religious communities based on these large groups: Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and often when people teach about religion in schools or in the media. We expect people to act in certain ways or believe in certain ways based on the group that they fall in. Is the research that you're conducting showing that it's more complicated than that? Or are there other ways that we should start thinking about religious identities so that we are not talking about these large world religions, but subsets based on race or or ethnicity or gender or any other Sort of categories.
3: Yeah, well, you know, here I think we've got the push and the pull of the quantitative versus the qualitative um, study of religion. Uh, You know, in the social sciences, um, you need these categories. You need categories to sort people into, and they need to be big enough categories that you can actually conduct reliable statistical analysis on them. Right. Um, So, if you're doing a survey of a thousand people, you need them. You need these categories to be big enough to at least have, say, at least 100 or so people in them. Otherwise, your results start getting uh, fairly unreliable if you drop below that. Uh, On the other hand, we all should just acknowledge that these are all sort of human, you know, uh, categories that have been constructed by social scientists for the – to help us see things in certain ways. They're never perfect, and they always do some kind of violence, actually, to the kind of messy uh, reality on the ground. We should always, I think, acknowledge you know that thing. On the other hand, you know, if we allowed for the uniqueness of every single congregation uh, on the ground, which is, you know, anyone who's ever served in a congregation knows that, like, if you move from one Southern Baptist congregation to another, it's a really different world, even though they're in the same, you know, uh, same denomination. If, if we stuck with that kind of granularity, which is really valuable, um, but it would be really hard to kind of come up and say anything broad uh, about about the group. So, I, I think it is a real challenge to. to to me, what what matters is, uh, can you test the category against lived reality, right? And does it see is the category? I think it's never the right question to say, for example, is the category of white evangelical Protestant, right, which has race, ethnicity, and uh, kind of religious identity all baked into one thing? Uh, it's never the right question, I think, to say, is that a truthful category or is it like a right category? I right. think the question, honestly, is is it a useful category for helping us understand the uh, live reality on the ground that means it should never be sacrosanct it should be questionable and we should be willing to look at uh, for example what do all evangelicals look like you know if we don't just look at at it by by race and then how do they how how does that category um help us see you know something interesting on the ground right i want
2: to pause a moment on this topic white evangelical protestants we began by talking about the religious demography of the united states I mentioned that we might be able to see something about our political mm-hmm. landscape because of the religious landscape. What do we know about the political landscape and the influence of white evangelical Protestants? Are we putting too much emphasis on white evangelical Protestants to understand our current political moment? Are there other groups we be sh- we should be looking at? What are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, white evangelical Protestants like other white Christians have been declining in their percentage of the population. So, uh, for example, um, if we go back again just to kind of the beginning of Barack Obama's tenure as president, 2008, his election, what we see is that white evangelicals, depending on the survey you look at, were around 23 22% of the population. And our last data has them down now to 15% uh, percent of the population. So they, like other white Christians, have been declining as a proportion of the population. But what makes them important, even as they decline, is that – they have been so active on just one side of the partisan divide in the U.S. So unlike mainline Protestants or Catholics who tend to be more divided in their partisan allegiances, even as this group has shrunk, they have still maintained their activity mostly on the Republican side of U.S. politics, which means that they have a very outsized voice on that side of the partisan uh, divide and uh, you know, not so much among Democratic uh, politics, but among Republican Uh, politics, they are still uh, a very powerful group uh, uh, to uh, contend with if you're a Republican uh, politician. So the other reason why evangelicals are important is because of their strong support for President Trump. Um, They voted about 8 and 10 for him in the 2016 election. As we've been tracking their favorability of President Trump, um, it is – Around his inauguration, it was in about two-thirds favorable, and it it has gone up since then and has remained fairly steady around seven and ten support for the president throughout his uh, his presidency. So that remarkable stability I think is also really important uh, for understanding them as a stalwart base uh, of of, – and in fact, when we asked um, white evangelicals who said that they had a favorable view of uh, President Trump's job performance – whether there was anything he could do uh, to lose their support, nearly four in ten reported that no, there's virtually nothing President Trump could do lose our support. So they are wow. a very, very uh, entrenched, uh, you know, group in the in the Republican coalition, uh, really bedrock support uh, for President Trump.
2: Wow. That's interesting because on social media I see this idea floated by a number of people based on mostly anecdotal evidence of young evangelicals that mm. they've spoken to that there's a generational gap and that older evangelicals are stalwart supporters of Trump but that younger evangelicals might be moving away from uh, from that political affiliation as well as certain key cornerstones of what many people think of as as primary evangelical issues. Is that true? Yeah. Is there a Change in generation.
3: Well, I, I think there is that divide, but I think it, it's a little bit different than that description. Um, so, if we go back ten years ago, um, I think that was more true than it is today. Um, and it is but, but it is true that young evangelicals have moved, uh, but where they have moved from is from being evangelical to being unaffiliated. So they've actually exited the category okay. over time, and we can see that a couple of ways in the in the in the data. For example, among young people today. Um, only 8% identify as white evangelical Protestant, right? And again, that that's compared to about 15% in the population. So young people are only half as likely to identify as evangelical as Americans overall. And when we look um, underneath the hood and we look at the median age, for example, of white evangelicals over time, we see it creeping up. And, and the main reason for that is that as they've lost members, they're disproportionately losing members from their younger ranks. Um, so what's happening is, yes, indeed, the young evangelicals of 10 years ago have moved, but they've not moved over to be Democrats uh, or, or they might have, but but they've mostly moved out of the whole category. They've stopped identifying as evangelical. And I, I think that's the real shift. So um, if you're looking for those people who were young evangelicals a decade ago, you should look for them in the unaffiliated category and not in the evangelical uh, category. And, and what we're seeing is that among the young people who have stayed The generational differences are now kind of muted because the people who have stayed are actually people who hold views uh, that are fairly consistent with older evangelicals. The ones who had views, for example, that were in great tension, like on gay rights, have largely left the fold.
2: Wow.
0: Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, Um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars, and we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even £1 a month um, by going to Patreon.com/slash projects rs and subscribing we know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people and they're learning so if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the paypal button on our website it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia but now back to the episode
2: it's helpful to to look at some of these assumptions or theories and test them against the data. So here's another thing to test <laughs> against the data. I've heard a lot about the resurgence or higher visibility of progressive Christians in the United States today. And I know a lot of people are are watching Reverend Barber's movement, for example. Does the data show increased religious uh, affiliation or or a higher salience of religious identity among people who identify as progressive Christians today?
3: Well, what, what I would say is it, it's a little complicated. Um, that The last sort of major study we did of this where we looked at it very carefully, what we did see is uh, among younger Americans under the age of 30, there were more progressive Christians than there were conservative Christians. That's true. Uh, it's largely true, though, because of this phenomenon we just talked about, right, right? is that right. the ranks of evangelicals and other conservative, particularly white Christians, have thinned. And so as that has happened um, among the under 30s, the relative ratio between progressive and conservative Christians uh, has kind of come more into balance. Um, In fact, uh, among those under 30, there are more progressive Christians than there are conservative Christians. However, there's one category that there is more uh, than either of those categories, and that is the religiously unaffiliated, because many, many young people are – 40% of young people are in that camp uh, again. So uh, it's – notable, right, that that's that's creeping up to be almost half of young people uh, claiming no religious affiliation whatsoever. Uh, That's a really different thing, by the way, than we've ever seen in uh, American public life. So if you take baby boomers back into their 20s, um, this is a question I get all the time, right? Is like, well, isn't everyone more unaffiliated in their 20s, right? You're single, maybe you're moving around a lot, you're changing jobs, Uh, You don't have kids yet, maybe. So, you know, those are all things that lead lead you to be more transient and less rooted maybe in a community or a community organization like a church or synagogue or a mosque. But what we find is if we look at the historical data and we take baby boomers back into their 20s, they're still less than 15% unaffiliated in their 20s. Wow.
2: Um,
3: So that means that this generation is at least two and a half times more unaffiliated than any generation that we've ever seen. Um, So even if some of them, you know, quote unquote, come back uh, as they have kids and they settle down, they're looking for kind of stability in communities and and integrating into community life, Uh, religious institutions are a way that people historically have done that. Even if a proportion of them do that, this will still be the most unaffiliated generation the country's ever seen.
2: What's quite interesting to me is when many people challenge the secularization thesis broadly – They often point to the United States as an outlier and say this is clearly a modern country that is highly religious and continues to be highly religious. So the secularization thesis is debunked, besides looking at other countries around the world that are highly religious. Does this data maybe put at least an asterisk by that and say, well, maybe we spoke a little too soon and the U.S. is actually becoming increasingly irreligious or unaffiliated? What does that do for our understanding of the secularization Mm -hmm. thesis?
3: Yeah, it's it's funny we got a UK audience here. So um you know, and, and United States. Both. Yes, and yeah. and you and, and US. But what would be what's funny about this, when I give a talk in the US and I say twenty-five percent of the country is now religiously unaffiliated and forty percent of young people are religiously unaffiliated. There are gasps in the room because people are shocked that there's that many people who claim no religious right. affiliation. If I gave that same lecture in London people would be shocked that there were that many people affiliated <laughs> right, right, with, right with religion. so I still think the. US is um, you know is a little bit different um, than Western Europe uh, for example, which is where it mostly gets uh, compared there's still more religious vibrancy here, more religious experimentation and more effervescence I think in the religious space uh, than there is in Western Europe uh, for sure and there's certainly not I think uh, overall uh, you know I, I think politicians here for example still, face pressure to say things like God bless America at the end of their speech in the way that, you know, British politicians uh, certainly do not. If anything, they face the opposite, you know, uh, pressure not to say anything overtly religious like that. Uh, So I I still think there's some difference here. But I do think that um, what we're seeing is there is a shift here that is certainly more – I think of something in line with what we saw in secularization thesis. It's not an absolute outlier. It's certainly like a lagger um, from from some of the trends we've seen in Western Europe. And I think we'll you know we'll have to wait and see. I mean, we we're, so far we don't see any evidence of this upward trend in the religiously unaffiliated flatlining. It keeps ticking up year after year after year.
2: I appreciate your cautiousness not to uh, prognosticate. Is that the right word? Yeah. But I'm going yeah. to
3: ask you to make some predictions. <laughs>
2: Can you look out with your crystal ball five, 10, 15 years? Are there any f- trends that you think will continue or things that you think we should look out for in the next decade or so? Yeah.
3: Well, yeah, it is like the sort of financial r- retirement planning thing that you see at the bottom. of the last risk is past performance is no guarantee of you know future returns. Right. Um, I think that's kind of where we're at on this. But with that caveat, I will uh, say say a couple of pieces of evidence on just to continue the unaffiliated line here. We are seeing a couple things that I think mean that this should continue, at least for the near future out. One is that we're seeing unaffiliated people now marrying other unaffiliated people, seeking them out as as marriage partners. That's significant because one of the main things pulling people back into religious community if they've become unaffiliated is that they marry someone religious and they have that conversation. Like, okay, well, I'm not going to get married unless we – Pledge to raise the kids in the church or in the synagogue. And and I think there's less and less of that happening. So I think that's one less thing to kind of pull people, uh, at least some people, back um, into the fold. And, you know, again, we just so far, we haven't seen a single year in the last decade where that line has been flat. It keeps upticking um, every year. One thing I'll say that is pretty clear from the evidence is that one of the reasons why this change on the ground has not quite translated into the political space yet is because of different ways that different religious groups turn out and vote. So in the U.S. context, the ballot box tends to act like a bit like a time machine, and it takes us back about 10 years to where the country was about 10 years ago. So uh, if you map the electorate onto the general population, the election in 2016 looks about like the general population looked in 2006. Oh, okay. It takes <laughs> us back about 10 years.
2: Interesting.
3: Um, and that's because white evangelicals and older white Christians turn out and vote At much higher rates. So they're overrepresented at the ballot box compared to where they are um, in the general population. And if we project that forward, what it means is even though we've passed this threshold, for example, where uh, the country is no longer a majority white and Christian, that will not be true at the ballot box until 2024. Um, So we're still two election cycles out from really seeing the demographic realities um, really hit uh, at the ballot box.
2: Wow. Well, that's a great way to pause on the content of all the things that you've been finding. And I want to make sure we leave some time to talk about how you collect your data, mm. look behind the hood and and look at the processes and and how you set up your battery of questions. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? What's it like to run a major polling firm and how do you do what you do?
3: Well, it's a lot of fun. Uh, first of all, it's great to be able to sit around a table and say, I wonder X, yeah. you know, and Think well. That's an empirical question. You know, we can actually put that to the test. So, and one of the things that we have uh, at PRI have pledged to do. So we're nonpartisan, we're nonprofit, uh, independent research organization. So part of our charitable purpose is that we are actually putting a lot of social science data back into the public domain. So one of the things we have made sure that we do is that we. Are very transparent. So every time we release something, we release the full questionnaire. We release. Uh, we hold on the data sets for a year for internal uh, purposes and for analysis. But after that, we release the entire data set out into the public domain. So anyone can pull it up at the Roper Center. They can pull it off of our website and download and do their own analysis. Uh, of the data. So that's part of our our mission. Uh, In terms of how we collect it, um, we are dedicated um, really to doing uh, full probability sampling of of data. Um, So all of our data is a random probability sample of the U.S. population. It's all Americans. Um, So even though we have an emphasis on like uh, mostly doing kind of political party and religion and race and other kinds of demographic breaks. We have full balanced samples of uh, the entire population and, uh, and all of our surveys. We really do sit down and we look. We do kind of our lit review you know, process where we look at other polls and what they have asked and other trends we might want to check. Uh, but I think one of the things we are always trying to get at is the why question. Um, and so not just the what, uh, but the why. So we definitely know, want to know what people believe, but we also want to know What connects belief A with belief B and belief C? What's the underlying thing that people – that drive them to connect those issues uh, together? So that's, I think, is part of the art um, of this, and and I think what makes it um, really the most fun and the most worthwhile.
2: It sounds so fun, in fact, that our listeners might be wondering how they can get involved. So do you have any ideas for scholars out there who sit there and wonder if – X, Y, or Z about the American population. Are there ways for them to try to do polling or to reach out to your kinds of organizations to feed you ideas? Or what's the process if you're a scholar in a university yeah. for trying to find out some of this information at a at a national scale? Yeah.
3: Well, there's a couple of options. I mean, uh, I get emails all the time uh, from, and I I love getting emails all the time saying, hey, have you thought about this? And you know, every now and then there's like, oh man, that's a great idea. You know, and we can if we have space, we can we could do it. So I would say. Feel free, you know, to shoot us an email, and um, we certainly are interested uh, hearing what's going on uh, and ideas that are out there. Um, the other way is uh, we have formally partnered with a number of universities, um, so we were. Uh, just this past year, we did a, a three or past three years, we did a three wave study with Florida State University, looking at spirituality and its impact on voluntarism um, and other kinds of pro social behaviors. Trying to answer the question: Does it make a difference if you're religious uh, or not for how you actually behave um, in the world? Um, and uh, trying to get at those kinds of questions, you know, we've partnered with the Brookings Institution, other kind of think tanks uh, um, in in this space. So um, I, I think it's a little of both. I mean, we we've, we've done kind of. Individual Individual things, But we've also uh, worked on kind of careful and multi-year um, kind of full-on collaborations with academic institutions.
2: And your work is entirely focused in the United States. Is that right?
3: It is. Yeah. So we, we just do domestic kind of religion, politics and culture.
2: And do you consult with folks outside of the United States who might be interested in this kind of work in other countries or do you have any partnerships or share... Ideas or best practices with organizations
3: outside the U.S. Yeah, well, we've certainly been talking about this. We we haven't so far branched out uh, beyond that, but it's certainly something um, you know we we'd certainly be open to doing. So. Great. Well,
2: thank you so much for speaking with me today. I think this time really flew by for me. I enjoyed our conversation. I want to remind our listeners that you can download all of the reports from the Public Religion Research Institute (PRRI) at prri.org. And if you're looking for contact information for folks at the organization, you can find that on their website. And we encourage you to check out the American Values Atlas Project, which has a lot of the data that we've been speaking about today. So thank you again, Robbie, for an excellent conversation. And I hope our listeners enjoyed it
3: as well. Great. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks.
1: Thanks so much, Robert and Ben. I talked a fair bit about the interview last week, so I I don't want to repeat myself, but really good to to go back to looking at North America, we had a wee run of this kind of stuff earlier on and we haven't done any for a while. So that's great. But next week yeah, from uh, this week, you've had four blokes chatting
0: Um, next week. um, We've got a a woman interviewing a woman. Fantastic. Uh, We've got Brianne Fallon, who's been speaking with Ruth Illman about basically music and Judaism. The title of the interview is melodies of change, music and progressive Judaism. So we're really looking forward to that interview. And um, that interview was actually suggested to us on Facebook by one of our Facebook followers, sent a message saying, I think it'd be great if you spoke to Ruth Illman about her research in contemporary Jewish music. And we said, we could probably do that. (laughs) Let's see if we can. And that happened. So that is an
1: example of just the sort of thing that you can do, listener. So Brianne is uh, in Australia. And is Ruth Illman in the US then? Um, I think she's in Northern Europe. Ah, okay. So we nice international uh, spread. Exactly. There.
0: And, uh, and it ties in as well because Brianne is currently working for a, a Jewish museum in Sydney, I believe. Yes, she is. Um, so she is. The, it, it really tied in with her both academic interests and current professional interests.
1: And uh, Brianne also had an article on the machete in Rwandan genocide and how it worked as a symbol Uh, on both sides in a recent issue of Implicit Religion and we've just actually just published two new issues of our journal Implicit Religion if you enjoyed Vivian's interview about Slenderman two weeks ago uh, you might want to check out her article there on mythology uh, video games as contemporary mythology Uh, but there's also some interesting papers from the Open University conference that I was involved in organising Uh, which I think will be of interest to our listeners. We would hope so. Yeah. Well, it's just there's two issues, so I'm struggling to. I don't want to pick one thing out. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, uh, go and check them out is the point. Wonderful. Wonderful
0: so um listeners um, we're into that sort of period of the year where everything's just ticking along nicely um i noticed that call for papers are out now for the the BASR of course our beneficent sponsors there's the AAR with uh, Nasser have their own call for papers or other beneficent sponsors um EASR is coming up soon yeah and you know you should already be thinking towards things like IHR 2020 there's there's a basic CFP up mm-hmm. for that already. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I can't believe how much the time flies. Every year, especially during this postdoc, I've said, oh, I'll totally get to the AAR next year. But they're looking for abstracts in like a month mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. next November. And I but, don't think but, I'm going to
1: make it. But I can tell you that we will both be at um, the Iehr in 2020 yeah, so we will. in New Zealand. Yes, we will. And there will be a lot of RSP activity. That probably will be the conference with the most RSP activity ever. Indeed. uh, But in the meantime, we've got BSR
0: at Leeds Trinity, and then David and I are jetting off to Hanover. Yes. For the German Association Conference. And I'm sure we'll do some form of podcast there because we couldn't miss that. And I'll be in Rome with Tommy Coleman in uh, May for the NSRN conference. And I'm sure there'll be other things too.
1: So Indeed. if you're going to something and you think, it'd be great if the RSP were covering it, maybe you could do that. And we'll need to think about the Christmas special at the BASR again this year soon. It's all, it's it's all go. <sighs> yeah, it'll, we'll be back. <laughs> we'll be in September
0: before we know it. But for now, Thanks, thanks for listening. For listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750.
1: Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief, Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and our Managing Editor, Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop don't forget
0: you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter google plus youtube itunes and other portals